Hey everybody, how's it going? Happy August to you. Welcome to another edition of This Week in Mormons, the premier Latter-day Saint news podcast, because we've been doing it for a very, 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 very long time. Literally longer than my marriage, which is bizarre. Anyway, though, I am your uh, host and founder, Jeff Openshots. Nice to be with all of you this week. We've got a lot to talk about, lots to go, lots going on um, for sure. So I'd like to welcome my co-hosts, guests this week. That's why, plural, we are a trio this time around, which is always a lot of fun. Uh, Liz Busby, you're back in the house. How are you doing, Liz? Doing great. What's going on up in Highland, Utah? Everything just... Oh, just winding down the summer. It's It's been a crazy like vacation every three days or whatever, or kids are in camps and running like crazy and school starts next week. So, you know, life in the 801 is just like one big sunset. You know, it's just a dream. It's great. <laughs> I'm glad you're all. Uh, we're also happy to welcome this week, new to the show, uh, Jennifer Roach, who lives in Washington State and has been a member of the church for about three and a half years. And before she joined the church, she was ordained at another Christian d- denomination. But she's here this week in particular because she also works as a licensed mental health therapist. And if you hear that, you probably have some ideas where our discussion might be going today. But Jen, we're really happy to have you here this week. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. So uh, so some a, a couple of things happened over some, the weekend. Some minor things. Yeah. You know, it's it's like it's like we were collecting stories for the week and it's kind of like, well, you know, there's a little bit of random things here and there, some stuff in the media, kind of one of those grab bag weeks. And then I believe it was Friday, was it not? Uh, was, Thursday, was it? Thursday, Thursday. I remember I woke up, I woke up and I get AP alerts for this and that and I had an AP alert on my phone that said basically, you know, 7 years of I think the actual headline is 7 years of abuse how the how Mormon, Mormon officials let it happen. Let it happen. Yeah. And I was like, okay, I'm probably going to need to read this and see what's going down. Like, is this our spotlight? Is this is that what's going on with us here? Um, and interestingly enough, it was written by Michael Resendiz, who was one of the actual reporters on the spotlight team that exposed a lot of Extraordinary reporter. High, yeah. high, high respect for him. So, and that's one thing to remember in this, people. I think a lot of people have viewed this as we get into it, like AP's out, you know, it's a hit job by AP, yep. yada, yada. For one, this is AP, like AP folks. They're one of the they're they're the folks other people use to then spin their stories out of AP information. Um, so, by way of a little bit of background, if you happen to miss this somehow, it chronicles the story of seven years, of course, in in the life of a family with a father who uh, sexually abused his daughters. Um, the wife was also she wasn't involved in that, but she didn't do much about it. But the crux they're trying to get at here is that the church has a hotline uh, in which that bishops can use when they have questions about abuse and ideally or ostensibly it functions so you can call up, see what's going on and see what further action you should take. Um, I've been exposed to this training myself. I'm in a bishopric. I've taken the protecting youth training. I understand what this is about. But in this case, you see that whatever that process is supposed to be, uh, it, it failed this family in this case because, and, and, and maybe I'm wrong in exactly saying that, maybe I could be corrected, but um, basically what happened is no abuse was reported by two bishops in succession. Um, eventually the perpetrator, of course, was uh, was in prison, I believe actually um, died by suicide. He did while before he his trial. Before his trial. But the real, the real crux of this here, though, is that there's a system that's supposed to be in place to protect the youth of the church. And what AP is getting at here is saying like, does this system exist to protect the victims and to ensure that abuse doesn't happen and get them out of there? Or is it a system that's run by lawyers from Curtin McConkie that exists to sort of keep the church out of legal hot water? And that's been the big discussion over the past few days. I simplified it. It's a fair question. Like it's important to discuss. Yeah. Um, 
And I think the truth is right somewhere in the middle of those two, right? It is a necessary thing for bishops to know when they're legally obligated to report because they can't, they're volunteers. They're UPS truck drivers and, you know, CEOs of tech companies. They don't know the law around when they need to report. So they need advice. It also, I think one of the bigger pieces of this that has been missed is I've heard a lot of folks say like, why don't they have a social worker answering the phone, like or a therapist, somebody who can tell these bishops, like, here's how to take care of the kids. And I get the sentiment of that. I really do. However, um, the first person that you want collecting details of a possible crime is not a therapist. Therapists aren't trained to do that. We are not trained forensically. Some psychologists are, most therapists are not. And there is a long history here a therapist actually completely mucking up cases because they mm. took the details instead of somebody who's actually trained to forensically co- collect details, especially when it involves children. So who should be, so obviously we understand not therapists, but should it be lawyers then? Are lawyers the one to take those details when it involves children? Um, well, mm. they, these are crimes. Yeah. Right. So, so yeah, it, I mean, it has to be lawyers. Yeah. I don't yeah. know. I, I don't know who else would know as much about what, what to do in a, like, if you commit a crime, you're probably going to get your own lawyer, right? Yeah. I don't know. It, no. Lawyers are not the only people who work on that line. There seems to be a couple different mm-hmm. tiers of it. Um, yeah, there was a follow-up in the Deseret News from somebody mm-hmm. who works at the hotline who was saying, yeah, yeah I, there are social workers and therapists there as well yeah. to help with, but that's like the second step. The first step is like, make sure that we're doing this right, that we're reporting correctly and yeah. getting you, things you to the police at the end. Yeah, you do not want therapists being the first person to to collect those details. It just, it does not go well. And it's interesting that you say all that. And let's look at like what the church's actual stance is. If you look in handbook, sure. section 38.6.2, that's where it talks about abuse. And of course, bear in mind, this is just for context, The church has been steadily updating its handbook and over the past handful of years. And the story we're referencing, of course, took place essentially well before that effort. So some Mm -hmm. of the standards have changed. I'm not saying I don't think the church has turned a blind eye to things, but I believe even some of that training we do now for protecting youth, some of that didn't even exist a couple until a couple of years ago in the way they do it. So that's that's one thing worth considering. So I do think the church deserves plenty of credit because it has worked more proactively to up its game in this area. Every, um, every church across the board is in that scenario that once the, the Me Too shift kind of happens, mm-hmm. most of the churches either actively or begrudgingly had to look at their policies and change policies. So this is like this is happening across the board in denominations. Interesting. Yeah. 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 Um, so, of course, the main section about abuse, it, you know, it, it speaks of the evil of abuse and what's wrong with it. And that all members, especially parents and leaders, are encouraged to be alert and diligent, do all they can to protect children and others from abuse. If members members become aware of instances of abuse, they report it to civil authorities and counsel with the bishop. Church leaders should take re- reports of abuse seriously uh, and never disregard them. And the last paragraph there, though, says when abuse occurs, the first and immediate responsibility of church leaders is to help those who have been abused and to protect vulnerable persons from future abuse. Leaders should not encourage a person to remain in a home or a situation that is abusive or unsafe. Now, I think, I think that did happen in the past sometimes. And so it's good that yeah. we've updated that. Yeah. Yeah. If I'm not mistaken, I mean, I think there, there are numerous stories of 
especially abusive marriages. And they say like, well, no, let's help your husband repent and yep. get through this. And like, of course we care about the spiritual welfare of somebody. But um, one thing that's curious about this is, you know, we don't want people to stay there if they shouldn't. That there's a bit of, it's a bit more complicated when you're dealing with like two-year-old children. It's also, yeah. it, it's also incredibly more com- complicated when it wasn't just sexual abuse going on in their home. There was a great amount of physical abuse. Mm-hmm. The because the you've read through all the court documents and it's it's much worse than the yeah. APR tool. Like, oh, oh, oh. yeah, the, I mean the court documents are out there. They're they're pretty easy to find. Mm-hmm. If you have a sensitive little heart, I if you can get away with not reading them, then please don't read them. They're awful. I didn't sleep for two nights. Right. Yeah. So, but in those documents, we see a lot of the physical abuse narrated as well. This was a incredibly violent man. Here's the thing that most people I think don't understand and it hasn't been talked about really well. The most dangerous time for a woman or child who live in a domestic violence situation is when they try to leave. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. that's when that's when you get murdered. And to suggest to a a, a DV victim that she just up and and move her kids you and I and every other adult with a with a functioning brain, like that's what we want. And statistically, you're putting that woman in an incredible amount of danger. And those women know that intuitively because they all make little attempts to leave and get severely punished for it. Wow. So there's a lot of factors in that home going on. Yeah. Yeah. It's never just as easy as when we report it, then it will stop. Yeah. It is it is not a silver bullet and usually you ha- there's multiple reports that have to happen before the people finally get out of the situation. Yeah, mm-hmm. it, it, that's true that's true in DV it's also true in sexual abuse where where often and I I am a victim of sexual abuse too, right? I have fallen into this trap myself. You tell the story, you take the story back. You tell the story, you take the story back. You tell the story especially when people are confused and hurting it and that's no slam on victims. But that it is, is confusing. How, it is confusing. So when you look in the court documents, you see lots of things like, oh, the bishops were told about the about the the sexual abuse. But then you see other things. Like there's a quote from one of the FBI agents, Jay Allen, where he says he he's reporting on the conversation that the mom and the bishop had. And the bishop asked the mom, when is it going to be enough? How much are you willing to take? And mom says to him, an incredibly reasonable thing to say. She says, if he lays a hand on my kids, I'm out. However, he'd been laying hands on her children for years and on her. She is she is very mentally ill. That, that's not a slam on her. That's just her, her mental state. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she, she, she lies a lot. She lies to the FBI. She calls them up, explains that she was lying, and then continues to lie. Like, her stories are unreliable. So you have this, I mean, in one sense, my heart really goes out to these bishops. On the one hand, we see like, oh gosh, he knew all these terrible things. And on the other hand, he thinks a hand hasn't been laid on the kids. What is missing in the court documents, which which no one except for the people involved in this case know the truth here, what exactly were the bishops told and when? And that is a question that is unanswerable at this point. They haven't spoken it's not and in the court documents. Doubt, we don't know. And I doubt they will. Like, correct. <laughs> yeah. Well, at least based on what we do know, even with the bishops having having not spoken yet, I mean, do we feel like either of them 
wasn't a place where they should have not there's legal requirements, whatever, but mm-hmm. should they have reported what was going on? Absolutely. To the they should have the, the, the fact that they did not report caused those two girls additional suffering. Can you imagine what that would have been like? They're still showing up those kids and their mom, not dad so much. They're still showing up at their ward every single yeah. Sunday morning. Mom plays piano in primary right? Help is like yeah. within arm's grasp, but, but it just can't quite get coordinated to get it to them. Um, we, we failed those girls. We made their suffering worse. When, when M1, the, I always forget what the AP calls her, MK, something like that. The court yeah, calls the girls. MK. The guard yeah. calls the girls M1 and M2. When M1 says in that AP article, I hate Mormons, they're the worst people ever, she's allowed to say that, right? Nobody in our church needs to shut her up around that. She's allowed to say that all day long. Those two girls deserve whatever settlement is coming to them. Um, we made we made their lives worse. We are not the only thing that made their lives worse. But we got we we need to accept responsibility in that. Yeah, and it's uh, totally fair to say that and then also say, but I don't think the helpline exists to cover up abuse. Correct. In this case, something yeah. went wrong, but it doesn't mean that the helpline is corrupt. Yeah. There's a difference There's, between those two things. Yeah. There are so many things that went wrong in this case. The help, the helpline failed. The 15 other systems that were in place, not by the church, just by society and families, all of those also failed. So. So speaking of the helpline, because that's been kind of in the crosshairs in particular yeah. over the past few days, um, what what do we think would have led, uh, if they spoke with lawyers, mm-hmm. would have led the lawyers to tell them, no, you don't need to report the abuse? I know there's some slightly conflicting co- um, statements, having read through some things. Mm-hmm. Is it like, did they actually say, don't report it? Did they only say you're not required to report it under state law, which is a little bit of a distinction. Mm-hmm. But- why do we think they would say that, right? We know if the helpline, of course, exists to encourage, and I know it, it, it functions well oftentimes. Mm-hmm. I know many bishops who have used it and they've counseled them according, like, here are the actions you take, et cetera, et cetera. At the same time, the bishops I've talked to have been in ones where reporting is a requirement. So mm-hmm. I think these lawyers also know that. So it's conjecture on our part, but like, what do we think? Yeah, you know. Why do we think they told them not to take any action in a situation like this? It, it, it's a, it's a There's a difference question. between not reporting and not taking action. Sorry, sorry. Thank you, Thank you Liz. Yes, fair. fair. It, it, it is a fair question. Like what broke down here? First, we don't actually know no. what they were told. And it's impossible to know. Yeah, and we don't have records of that. Even the, I mean, the AP reporter could not have pieced together the, the helpline thing from the Arizona documents alone. He had to get leaked the West Virginia documents that are on a completely unrelated case for him to understand, oh, this is what the helpline is. The, these court documents just do not talk that much about it, so we don't have the answer. However, if you want speculation, um, Arizona is one of the states where clergy do have an exception. My imagination of how the phone call to the helpline went was something like, there's a couple in my church, the man is abusing the child, the wife knows about it, Bishop had reason, we can come back to this, but Bishop had reasons to believe, at least at that point, that it had stopped. Um, the the option- Because that's what he was told, probably. It, yeah, and, and we can get into the details of that if you want, but the the advice then becomes, 
you have the clergy option to not report. There, there was a plan in place for helping this family. It failed. Um, if I could rewind time, they would report, right? And it, it's not what happened. I don't believe for a oh. second that the the helpline told them, don't report, you're going to hurt the church, which, which is oh. which is oh. what people are saying, right? But that's Twitter or whatever. Um, that's where I get my best information. I mean, what do you think? <laughs> <laughs> it has <laughs> not been a happy place this weekend. I have not angry. visited very frequently, so that's how I'm staying sane. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. I, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's... there's yeah. There, there's there's pitchforks out, and you have to like. We talk about these victims here, and and the mm. parents who adopted them were also yeah. recent converts to the church, and through yep. this experience, they asked their records to be removed, yep. and understandably, um, yeah, understandably. And I'm I'm worried about a bit of a of that kind of level of backlash. I mean, like even reading through a lot of this this weekend, trying to have a level mind in mm-hmm. processing all of it. It's probably good we're recording now a handful of days later than later. what happened. Cause I was like yeah. livid over the weekend. I'm just like, are you freaking kidding me? Cause like yeah. I, I, I was telling my wife, if I were a Bishop and I, again, we don't know exactly what they said on the helpline, mm-hmm. but if they, if they said something like it's up to you to report it, then okay. Mm-hmm. But if they actually said, no, you don't need to report this. I probably would have been like, yeah, okay. I'm reporting it anyway. And let yeah. the dominoes fall where they the, may. The characterization and, though, that the bishops just sat on their yeah. hands while these two girls were being raped is not true. That is not what happened. Yeah. Well, elaborate on that, Jen. What, what, what so, do you... It, the, the again, the mom complicates things here. Um, the bishops were working with the family. They did not understand something really important about the mom's mental health. I want to be careful how I say this. Um, mom's on the autism spectric, spectrum. She has a couple other diagnoses as well. Most people with those diagnoses do not allow their children to be abused, right? And she is sane enough that she knows right from wrong, right? So these are not excuses for why she did. And it's not saying, oh, this is what autistic people do, right? But mm-hmm. her version of autism is this very, very black and white version where she believes that if she can put things in black and white categories, she actually is changing reality. Here, here's an example. At one point, she finds a, a cell phone that has pornography of her daughters recorded on it. Her solution to the problem was to smash the phone. And that in her mind, problems taken care of, right? She had many, many family rules about the children are not allowed to sit on dad's lap. Eventually that turns into the girls aren't allowed to be alone with dad. Eventually it's none of the children are allowed to be home with dad. Dad didn't follow any of those rules. None of them worked, but in mom's mind, Every time she makes a new rule, it's a fr- it's a clean slate. This is nonsense to all of us, but it but that's the state of mind that she's coming through. So the the bishop is trying to work with this family, tr- trying to get mom to report, trying to get dad to report, trying to do all of these kinds of interventions. Um, ultimately, they don't work because abuse keeps happening, even though mom thinks she's stopping it by breaking cell phones. Their effort, the church's efforts fail here, and ultimately, dad is just excommunicated. Yeah. What do we make of the uh, also been in the news a lot? The laws vary by state, 
And so mm-hmm. the, the concept of, you know, like priest penitent privilege, for example, yep. which is similar to, but not exactly the same as like attorney client privilege, that kind of mm-hmm. thing. That's the idea. And yeah, there are many st- states that protect someone because they, that way somebody, a penitent can confess things and, mm-hmm. and without fear of repercussions, at least legally. Yeah. Uh, and, and that is the case in some states. And I've seen a lot of people arguing that like, one, those just shouldn't be the laws like full out. I mean, mm-hmm. that's a whole other discussion we could have. But do we feel like that's something we need to revisit from a church perspective? Because I've seen a lot of takes that seem to be saying, sure, we're not encouraging anything. We're, we we might have, the system might have failed, but the church is in many ways kind of trying to do the legal maneuvering and minimum it has to do to get through these processes. Like if reporting is required, they'll say so. If there is privilege, then they just kind of like hang out and it depends. And so I've really seen this concept of priest penitent privilege just kind of come under fire over the past couple of days. I, I, I think it's 28 states that still have some version of it. Um, it's absolutely an older way of thinking. It's a, it's a pre-Me Too way of thinking. 10 years ago, this wasn't even on the anybody's radar of should this mm-hmm. exist or shouldn't it. The, the Catholic Church scandal breaks and, and stuff started with that. Should those law change? Yeah, pro- probably. Um, they were there for a reason and they were there for a long time. So it's not like, oh my gosh, what are all these terrible, terrible states doing? They just haven't yeah. caught up yet. Yeah. Do, do you think there's a lot that many people would argue though, that like those who are perhaps even the abusers will be more inclined to talk to their bishop if they feel like that that's open and that it's not a guaranteed legal so, action against them. But there's some, I've, I've said that that's just an old way of thinking and that's the Nonsense. research, yeah. the research on this um, that's probably the most current and most relevant actually has to do with um, nurses and doctors. Um, you could throw therapists into that too, although they're not in the research on this. Nurses, doctors, and therapists are encouraged by our licensing boards to tattle on each other constantly, right? So you see, you see your fellow nurse doing something wrong, you need to say something, right? That's nurses and doctors and therapists are told this all the time. There is some research that says in the laws or in the states where these laws are most heavily penalized, um, that if you snitch on somebody and like that person is going to get in a lot of trouble, um, reporting by fellow nurses or doctors actually goes down. So that the the higher the the consequence, the lower the reporting. Does that apply here? I don't know. Um, it's not, here's the thing. Everybody understandably wants a magic bullet for how to fix the child abuse problem. I do too, right? The problem is the, the helpline isn't the magic bullet. Background checks aren't the magic bullet. Um, these kind of laws are not the magic bullet. There's a, a coalition of about 20 things that all serve together to protect children there's still a lot of holes in them, but no one of them can be taken out individually. Even the too deep law, even a rule in our church, that doesn't work. It works, or I should say, it works when it works great. But you know, you've heard of the Larry Nassar case. He abuses his victims in front of their parents. Their parents are in the same room, right? Which yeah. like, okay, like yeah, too deep law, too deep rule, great. Until it's not. So nothing is nothing is a magic bullet. Certainly not background checks. Yeah, 
but like you said, maybe all these things together, kind of the Swiss cheese approach, the different, we, you seem we, not to like the, you don't like the metaphor. Okay. So, <laughs> second I said more. Swiss cheese, you were like. <laughs> we, we always need more, but yeah, it it's so hard because the, the case of what would happen if we didn't have the church helpline is a counterfactual. Yeah. We can't know. We can't know what's prevented. We can't know what isn't prevented. Like you can't even count the cases like this one. How many mm-hmm. are there? We don't know. And we yeah. won't know for years. It, is, it, isn't it true? Oh, sorry, go ahead, Jen. No, no, you go ahead. <clears throat> well, I was just going to pivot. I was going to say, isn't it also true that aren't there some states where it's kind of the opposite? There's some that allow for the privilege. Aren't there some where if a religious leader actually does report, there could be so, penalties against the church. Like isn't Oregon, wasn't there a case in Oregon about that it, or something like that? Yes, sort of. Sort I'm of, okay. not aware of any state that outright says you will be prosecuted if you report. Reporting is illegal. I don't think anybody says that. However, there are some places where the law at least used to be, um, you're breaking confidentiality by doing this and can be held responsible for that. The bishop in Oregon, um, a man, I don't actually remember if he confesses or if he's caught. It's been a while since I've looked at this case, but he, he it, it's abusing somebody. Bishop goes to the police. The man's wife is now taking the church to court because yeah. he disclosed. It was not illegal for him in Oregon to disclose. Like Oregon as a state isn't coming after him and saying, Hey Bishop, we're putting you in jail, but she is taking him to civil court for it, which she's allowed to do. That, that case has not, that case was not thrown out. Yeah. That's so interesting. Yeah. So even if we're talking about things that could make it better, do we think that like, regardless of what the laws are and we're talking very strictly in a North America in an American United States in context right now, listeners. So apologies. I mean, I don't know what the laws are in Canada or in other Anglophone countries or who knows where else, but, um, does it stand to reason that the church would benefit from simply revising some of its standards and just saying, you report the abuse, like end of discussion, call the helpline to get tips on how that should be, mm-hmm. but we don't leave a window open for you not to, like you're not going to be you're not gonna be liable, we're not going to come down mm-hmm. on you, but but you report the abuse. Like that's the moral thing to do, regardless yes, of the philosophy. Yes, you should report the abuse. However, we will never know, but in a case like this, what would have happened? Yeah. They, they report the abuse to CPS. CPS works with their law enforcement partners. Uh, what? A black and white car with sirens goes down their dirty, their, their dusty road to their house? Not one, if the dad is home, not one of those kids, and certainly not the mom is talking. And, and they're going to do what victims do, which is, oh, no, 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 everything's fine here. These are my children. They're great, right? Because that's, that's a, a victim pattern. That's often what happens, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's often what happens. Police car pulls away. What happens next? Right? So, so yeah, yeah, we should report. And we actually, by reporting, we will never know, but you could have got those kids killed. There's a lot of guessing games you can play. Like I was yeah. in a, I was in a ward where I was in a Relief Society presidency and this kind of thing happened. And the bishop reported it because we were in Washington and we were required to report it. And then, yes, they took it all back. Nothing happened with CPS. And then the mother and daughters were prevented from coming to church anymore. They were totally cut off from us. We couldn't help them anymore. Um, Even though we knew what was happening, there was no way we could prove it. Yeah. And and now there was no way we could help them and comfort them. 
Yeah, right? reporting still should have to do. It's still yeah, a it should, moral but... thing. However, most people who are screaming that on Twitter have literally no idea what happens when that cop car shows up or when he leaves. Yeah. It is not an easy situation. No. Yeah. There's no silver bullet that we all want to have, unfortunately. Yeah. No. There's, there's yeah. nothing we can do to, to stop there, the whole gen- there's gen- a, um There's a petition that's going around trying to get pressure the church into using background checks. Um, law was just passed which in they California. Do in, which they do in California and Pennsylvania mm-hmm. as well. Um, yeah. yeah, I think the law either got passed this year or in effect this year. I can't, in California, I can't remember. California um, just took effect this year. Okay, thank you. Um, background checks. I I actually think that we should do them. You will catch the very, very, very rare abuser. However, what most people think a background check is, is this like secret Oracle that somehow divines what's going on in a person's heart as if they have the, the potential to be an abuser. The man in this case, the father, he would have passed a background check until the moment he died. He, he had. Back- he was a border. He, he was a border patrol agent. They have background checks. Absolutely. They have clearances. So he, they have he has a yeah. federal one for years. He loses his. He loses his border patrol job. Um, yeah. First they demote him, and then they, and then they fire him. Yeah. So at the very end, he didn't have that, but he still could have completely passed a background check. And then guess what? You know, whoever is running some youth organization he wants to go work at, they say to him. We take child abuse very seriously here. You have to pass a background check. What does he do? He just sits back and smiles. Of course, knowing that he will pass it. And now they have introduced him to the children that they serve. And he's one of the worst child predators that have ever existed. So what do you what do you do that like what do you do to make a background check more worthwhile then like what's what's lacking in that process? Well, here I mean here's the problem is abuse is secretive and shameful. Mm-hmm. Um, do you know Jeff the average age of first report of childhood or teenage sexual abuse? I'm terrified to know what it is. Do, so do no, you want do you want to make a guess? Uh, eight. Um, how about a how about a guess that's an average? Like what do you think the average is for the first time they report? As far as the age of the person who's being abused? Yeah, the, the victim themselves. Yeah. When do they the, come forward the very oh, when first time? Oh, do they time? come forward? Mm-hmm. Oh, gosh. I would imagine some of them don't come forward until they're like twenty in their 20s. In their 20s. I would, maybe. I, I'm saying I wouldn't be surprised if there's many victims who don't come forward for a very long time for any number of reasons. Perhaps they, even later. The people who, who really own this space are called Child USA, and they're a nonprofit. They work in the... Um, spaces about statute of limitation reform or, around abuse issues. Their statistic from 2017, so pre-Me Too, hopefully this has gone down a little bit, is that the average age of first reporting is 51. Oh, geez. So if if you got abused at age 10 and you don't report it till 51, in most states, number one, you're out of luck, that no charges are going to be filed. There's a statute of there are very few statute of limitations that are going to give you 40 years to report. Some states are more generous than others. Utah's actually not that bad. Um, it, so it's never going to go on a criminal record. It's it's not it's not hearsay, right? A, a background report is what has this person been convicted of? So it's not so even this guy, he's sitting in jail, he decides to hang himself while he's hanging there. He has a clean background report because he isn't convicted of anything yet. So how do you change that? Well, one, you get people to report earlier. How do you do that? Um, if 
if I can like hammer any point in this conversation, this is the point I've been trying to hammer, which is by and large, adults do not understand how children and teenagers report abuse. We are missing it. Um, no child and no te teenager calls up their bishop and says, hey, I need to set an appointment with you. And then like walks in the door and sits on the couch and says, well, gosh, on November 27th at 3.08 p.m., here's what my dad did. They, they Children and, and teenagers do not think that way. That's how adults think. The vast majority of reporting by children and teenagers is accidental. They say something that's weird, right? The classic example is the girl who says to her school teacher, She's like an 11 year old girl. She says something to her school teacher about how her dad knows all about her underwear. So she's just like, you're 11, that's weird, right? And picks it up and, and follows the trail. Takes that girl like six more conversations before she confesses anything. When I, when I first told my abuse, I think it took 12 conversations before I was willing to spit it out and I'm mouthy. Like, <laughs> I have no end of words, right? Um, kids and teenagers drop these things. They don't even know they're dropping. And I understand why a middle-aged bishop is terrified to pick up that sentence and say, your dad knows what about your underwear, right? Because he doesn't want to touch that with a 10-foot pole. However, yeah. he has just missed an abuse disclosure. The other way quite a bit less common, but the other way that kids or teenagers disclose is a deliberate red trail. They will tell you one weird little comment in passing, and they might even tell you they're joking, right? The, the wise adult remembers that, maybe brings it back up, maybe asks about it later. You might terrify that kid. You might have to work on the relationship and bring like whatever. Um, but if you if you're with a kid and they give you a breadcrumb and you pass right by it and didn't even notice it, which is what most adults do, you have just missed a chance for disclosure. So in this giant configuration of, of helpful tools for kids that were missing, the biggest one that not just us in the church, but all of us in Western society miss is kid, kids and teenagers are trying and they're not getting heard. Hmm. That's exactly what happened in the ward that I was in. It was an accidental comment the teenage girl made yep. at Young Women's and it was followed up on. And that's, it's not usually what you think. Yeah. I'm, gl yeah. I'm glad you were able to pick up on that. And I think about this with, within the context of the protecting children and youth training we have to do only every mm -hmm. three years, which mm -hmm. is like, it's like a 20 minute video and it right. doesn't go into those kinds of details. And I get it. Like it's hard. The church is a church of volunteers. We're not mm -hmm. a church of trained licensed professionals in any of these things. You know, bishops are what, whatever they are during their day job. And they're also bishops. Um, it does make me think it wouldn't hurt us to maybe bolster up that training a little bit. Like everything we're talking about, I think is perfectly within reason. Why not mm -hmm. have segments about how you can actually look for cues from from youth like what could define abuse like why not to, have that we, to be we don't fair, we just say be there for them it's right of, it's a lot of broad a lot of generalities to be fair i haven't done it for about five years but five years ago i did a review of the the major curriculums that that denominations use to train volunteers around this and yeah. not one of them mentions that that, that adults don't know how to listen to kids on that that's just a piece of information that is not very well known but, well, but it is also backed know. by research You'll be happy to know that Detox Christopherson's a regular listener of this show, and he has heard us now. Very good. 
I don't well, know. I mean, it is interesting that there's a whole section in the Liahona this month that is about abuse. And there is yeah, an absolutely. article in there that is for parents saying, here's how you can notice these things. And mm-hmm. here's how you can protect your kids and teach them what's, you know. So I think we are trying to do what we could do more. Yeah. It, interestingly enough, in uh, mental health psychology, there used to be this really big push toward, can we identify abusers? And the only thing they've ever confidently been able to say is most abusers are male. And that's not helpful because most males are not abusers, right? Um, The research has kind of really shifted towards identifying kids who are at risk instead of adults who are at risk. And it's all the same risk factors that they are at risk for, for everything else. So watching out for those kids in the ward who are at risk in all of the normal ways that's who your eyes need to be on. That's who you need to be maybe listening a tiny bit extra carefully for the weird comment. Yeah. Mm. I want to, Liz, you just kind of hinted at it. I want to think about the church's response a little bit. I, I have to imagine it's coincidence that the Liahona this month delves into this at I mean, the yeah, same time. It's usually planned out months in advance or it's years planned, even. Well in advance, yeah. I mean, at the same time, I like to I, I like to assume AP gave the church a heads up about this kind of thing. That would be pretty standard practice for Pro- journalists. Probably, probably not more than a week or two weeks before. That's the what I mean, though. Not out. a crazy amount. So nope. not enough to to guide the Liahona. Correct. Um, which is completely expected. But one thing that I did find interesting is I would love to talk about the church's statement in response to this, and I will strive to do so with an open mind, but as someone who works in PRA, I, this whole thing drives me up a wall, but that's but I will be reasonable and measured and just a moderator here mm-hmm. and let everyone else hash it out. Um, they just need to hire you, Jeff. No, they don't. <laughs> though, though, we could have a whole discussion about how church PR is like noticeably worse than it used to be when Michael mm-hmm. Otterson headed church PR. And I don't know if that's because under President Monson, if like they let the PR people do their thing and maybe they control it more in our, I have no idea. But I do feel like church PR is not what it could be or what it used to be. My my anyway. first my first read of that statement, I actually thought like, yeah, like I I, I can see where they're coming from. I think this is okay. Yeah. At second read, my biggest two problems with it are there is some wiggle room in that statement that could justify the people who are saying, "Oh, the the AP is attacking us as poor victimized church members." Right, yeah, they they, yeah. they throw a tiny bit of shade at the reporter, and I don't and I don't love that because that's not what is happening here. And yeah. I I wish that it had been more pastoral towards the family, and um, a third of the adult women who sit in our churches are abuse victims of some kind or another. Right? How triggered do you think every ward in our country was yesterday? Yesterday Sunday. Yesterday was Sunday. Yes, I mean, I've been buried in this topic. <laughs> And shockingly, in our testimony meeting, there was not an allusion to anything in this sphere, like at all. I, I wondered if it would come up, but nope. I think it's because we've got the temple dedication coming up here in DC next week. So it was a lot sure. of temple testimonies. But yeah. uh, now the statement's interesting because, yeah, at first glance, too, I was like, okay, you know, it's the church is kind of saying, like, hey, this, didn't, this isn't the whole Boiler story. Mm-hmm. But as I read between some of the lines, my biggest frustration with it was it, it makes a lot of assertions like AP is wrong and doing this wrong. And this is, this is kind of classic PR in some ways. But it goes to zero lengths to explain what exactly they did wrong. Like, what is the, quote, oversimplified and incomplete and a serious misrepresentation of the church? I know what those things are, but I've read every court document. Yeah. So it's like, so what is that if you read read the statement? Yeah. Like, so what is that? Church, tell me, tell me what this oversimplification or this 
misrepresentation is, this oversimplification is, because I want to know what that is. Otherwise, it does come off more defensive than perhaps it even needs to. Mm-hmm. But I, I love this one piece they had uh, by Common Consent. I think this was Michael Austin. Was it Michael Austin? I think it was Michael Austin. Yes, it was. It was. He essentially wrote a re-edited version of it, which was more pastoral, as, mm-hmm. as Jennifer was kind of saying, which I liked. And I think there's room for that. I'm not, you know, Michael Austin's not the person working for the church. And uh, I have to imagine the church's statement went through some, uh, went through a few hands in the sure. upper echelons of leadership. It did strike me as almost knee-jerkish, though. But that's what I wonder. Even if they had a couple weeks from AP, I thought they could have taken time to craft something a little more. Do you know, I... I've actually kind of come to a third position on that. And to say everybody is triggered by this story, right? I don't care if you're a high leader in our church all the way down to, to, to whatever, the smallest child who has heard of this story. No one heard this story and did not have an emotional reaction. So was that, was that statement a little bit emotional reaction? maybe I'm not going to judge them for that. I had an emotional reaction. So did you, so did you, so did every single adult that I know. Yeah. And that's why I wonder, it seems emotional. Like, did they not get a heads up from AP? Cause in my, in my mind, this is just my mind. If they knew the story was coming out and had given a chance to see it and you have even a week or a week and a half to craft a response, you can get yeah. some of the emotion out of I have you. It's not perfect, but like, even like right now, if they, I, if they include more details, does it look even more defensive? Mm-hmm. And so they're just like, let's just do the bare minimum because they expect a response from us and just like wait Maybe. until everybody's to, emotions blow over. Yeah. To, to me, I do feel like this is a case where try to do just that little bit and wait for it to blow over. To me, just makes us look like we're being like shadier about it. That's just for yeah. me, in, ter- in terms of perceptions. I mean, like I love the M- Michael Austin's idea is basically saying like, look, we the system failed here. Like this mm-hmm. does not represent the church writ large, but the system yeah. failed here. We're going to examine what's going on here and see what can be done better. I don't think saying something like that demonstrates any kind of weakness. It demonstrates some humility while still saying we have processes. We have a robust system in place and we do want to make it better. And this terrible story reminds us that we can do more. Like, what's yeah. wrong with saying that? The, the yeah. unfortunate part of that not being said is there are people who who really are making the leap from the bishops didn't report, they should have, therefore the church is bad. Instead yeah. of saying yeah. the bishops didn't report, they should have, I wonder what happened. I, I, wonder, I wonder what we could fix. I wonder what, what really actually was going on here. Nobody, nobody on Twitter knows that answer. Even no. if they actually do. And that's a good way to put it, because you have what the AP said, and the church is basically pushing back and, and essentially just saying, like, no, we've got this. All right? Like, we're fine. Mm-hmm. There has to be that middle ground of realizing, like, yeah, inst- inst- our wonderful church, which has the fullness of the gospel, is still run by people and bureaucracy, and things can go wrong. My my favorite my favorite change. quote right now is, it's very old. It says, newspapers write the first draft of history. Meaning... They're going to do their best. And I absolutely believe this guy did his best. Um, yeah. And he, there is no way he can get every single thing right. Um, I've known one reporter in my life that I can honestly say every single time he has written about me, he has gotten it right. And, and that, is not, that is not universally true how reporters yeah. write, right? Like, so, he, so, so this fantastic reporter gave us a first draft. And now it is our job concerned adult members of the church to figure out, okay, where's the, what do we add, need to add nuance? Where do we need to add context? Where do we need to seek understanding? Where do we need to seek to do better? Yeah. Yeah. 
Amen to that. <laughs> um, well, before we move on from this, anybody else have anything we want to say about this uh, the, difficult chapter? The last thing that I want to say is, you know, my heart really goes out to the abuse victim who is in our church, maybe not healed from her own abuse and super, super triggered about this because there's a lot of overlap between, even though the church wasn't doing the abuse here, right? Like it was this dad and yet somehow there's this wrong, but, but popular way of looking at it that says, Oh, the church just didn't care and and let this happen. That impacts people's, relationship to God. It impacts their understanding of their own spirituality, who they are in relationship to some kind of divine presence. Those are the people that I care about. And in the last whatever, not even a week since this story has come out, like to me, those are the people who need the attention right now. We don't Mm -hmm. know the victim. I have no access to her. You have no access to her, right? There's nothing we can do for her. However, there are some very triggered and terrified and sad and upset women and men in our own wards who, who, who need a little soothing and who need a little help and who need a little just pastoral care around this issue. Um, and I don't want them to get missed. Yeah. Reach out to those who you know and tell mm-hmm. them you're there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're still going to talk about some other news of the week, but we thought this merited some extra time. Um, Jennifer's not going to stick around for all Sorry. of it. So, no, it's, you know, like you, you said, need you're a break. tired. You need a break. <laughs> yeah. uh, and that's fair. But, you guys uh, are Jennifer, thanks for the podcast that I have done. So, there you go. <laughs> Woo. And the last shall be first, and the first shall be last. I don't actually know. Which literally to... means, Kurt, you heard that. The first shall be last. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I don't actually um, know how to and, log out of here. Oh, no, I got it. So, anyways, Jen, thanks okay. a lot for being here. I appreciate yep. it. Thanks. Bye. All right. Uh, well, everyone, we hope you enjoyed that segment. Thanks again to uh, Jennifer for spending some time with us. Lots to think about from that. And it almost feels weird to kind of go on with some news, but we still have some other things going on this week uh, that we wanted to share with you so that we can all stay up on what's going on with Latter-day Saint news. Um, one thing of super interest to me, and of course, always to me, as related to the Washington, D.C. Temple, which I think... I don't know, man. It's like I talk about this, I, when I used to talk about like COVID all the time on the show. Now it's just all I talk about the Washington DC temple. Um, the church finally announced who was going to dedicate it this coming weekend, which usually they announce these things well in advance, but for some reason they had not announced who was going to come and be involved in this process, but they have confirmed president Nelson himself will be here this weekend to dedicate the temple on August 14th. He will be accompanied uh, by president Oaks and president Iring, as well as elders Quentin L. Cook, D Todd Christopherson and elder Gong, as well as the presiding Bishop Gerard Casset, elder Paul V. Johnson of the presidency of the 70, the sister Amy Wright, who's first counselor in the primary general presidency. Uh, and then some other general authority seventies, including uh, elder Bassett, elder Duncan, Elder Haney, uh, Elder Sikahema. So lots going on. It's a regular party, regular party in D.C. This is probably the biggest entourage since the Rome Temple, I would think. Uh, And so other than that, most of you folks already know all the ins and outs of this. The one weird thing is they kept saying, I'll I'll announce it publicly on the air. They kept saying they're supposed to have like a youth devotional, but now I've heard nothing about it. So maybe it's not actually happening because it's a rededication. I'm not sure. But uh, I'm excited for that. This weekend, it's going to be great. Three sessions, 10 a.m., 1.30 p.m., 5 p.m. Eastern, and they will be dedicating our temple. They're actually making our stake center an extension of the temple. Oh, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So It's interesting uh, when they do that. 
it'll be pretty cool. Uh, and the one interesting thing is they've, I don't think they've always done this, but they lowered the age. So youth can go with uh, what used to be called a limited use recommend, but that's not the appropriate term anymore. Uh, but also they've allowed baptized kids age eight through 11 to attend right, yeah. A, 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 yeah, a special little recommend. So that's been pretty fun. Like in my capacity, I've been able to, we've been trying to ramp up and get people to come and get their recommends current. And uh, it's been pretty fun. So cool stuff out here. We'll have President Nelson out here this weekend and yippee. We, so we expect a report on how great it was. Full re- Yes, I will tell you everything about the inner workings of the temple on this show. Wait a minute. Mm. <laughs> You'll hear nothing because I believe it's the sisters next week. So sorry, everybody. You won't hear a thing about it from me. There you go. Well, this was an interesting one I picked up from the newsroom. Um, apparently, the church has a new fellowship to help um, African-American students learn about their heritage it's a scholarship um, in collaboration between the NAACP and the church to send 43 students to Ghana for 10 days to experience the culture and learn about their heritage and become ambassadors of racial harmony. So the church has pledged a quarter of a million to this effort this year. It's kind of interesting. Um, is this, I think this is a totally new program. So I had not heard anything about it and just came across it on the the page. I don't know why this rings a bell for me somehow though. Like I think this is new, but I feel like there's some weird part of me. Maybe we talked about them deciding to do this on the show. Maybe I think they have been talking with the NAACP a lot, right? I think that's why. So now it's in action. I believe it was last summer when they announced a couple of um, things we were doing with the NAACP. And one of them was they kind of mentioned this to get people in touch with their, yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is a, yeah. So there's pictures. It's really, it's really cool looking little video on the church website. Check it out. That's super awesome. I'm glad they're doing that. That's uh, yeah. that's cool. We're just plowing through these now. Let's Folks, do it. Something you should know now, as of the time of recording this episode, now, just like barely today, President Russell M. Nelson is now the longest living apostle in the history of the church. We have never had anyone older than he, ever. How about that? So there you go. as of today, our time of recording, um, he David B. Haight lived for 97 years and 11 months, or what was a total of 35,763 days. And Love now, it. President Nelson has lived for 97 years, 11 months, and one day more. And he will turn 98 in September. Uh, it was earlier this year he became the longest living president of the church when he passed Gordon B. Hinckley's old age. And, uh, you know, I'm not a, I don't do the betting stuff, but I, I think, well, I've, I've got a feeling we're going to get at least up to age 99 here. He doesn't we're, we're, seem like he's slowing down at all. It'll it's, be awesome if we get to centenarian as the church president. How fun cool. will that be? Yeah. So, uh, you know, it's, it doesn't, does it mean anything officially? It doesn't like mean anything, but it's, man, I'm just amazed that like we've had old, he's the oldest one ever. And we've had other people who are his age or younger who were not really firing uh, as they used to in the past. But President Nelson just keeps going and going and going. I don't know. He's the one who tells us to take our vitamins. I just don't know what he's doing other than reportedly being a vegetarian. But I don't know if that's true. Oh, that's interesting. I haven't heard that rumor. The one thing I've noticed is he lives lives forever. And I feel like apostles who some of whom were a little, little, little thicker coming into it have lost weight during the Nelson era. And that's probably just a choice. 
But part of me wonders if he's like preaching good living amongst them, especially if you look at Elders. He's Renlund. leading the jogging club. The I don't know. jogging club. He totally is. But it's noticeable when you look at Elders Renlund and Suarez, especially. Those two have slimmed down a ton, particularly in the last four and a half years. So, All right, Suarez, I'm stopping by your house at six. You better be ready. We're going. <laughs> <laughs> Listen here, Ulysses, without a middle name. Oh. All right. Well, I'm going to throw in some of my signature Mormon literature news. Oh, yeah. um, Let's do it. So this month was the Association for Mormon Letters Conference. I had lots of fun. You can watch all of the panels on YouTube. It's free. Um, but one thing that they've been working on for a couple of years that I was really excited about is a list of 100 works of significant Mormon literature. Um, it's a really interesting list. Um, it's all just the work and the glory. Every version of it. There is the work and the glory yeah, as right. one item on that list. Okay. Um, but there's some really interesting ones in there you probably haven't read. Um, one that I think every church member should read because it is absolutely wild. Um, probably the first piece of Mormon literature out there is Parley P. Pratt's dialogue between Joseph Smith and the devil. It's like a little play. I've never and read it, this. Oh, okay. So you got to you got to read it. So what it is is the devil comes on stage and he's giving out handbills trying to recruit people to help him fight against the Mormons. And then Joseph Smith comes on stage and he says, "Oh, what are you doing?" He tries to hide them behind his back. And they proceed to have this conversation about their adversarial relationship. And in the end, they go for a drink in the bar and toast each other's mutual destruction. It's really wild. Like you seriously got to read this. You will not believe it. It is great. This sounds like I could finally use the word internecine to describe something, which makes me so yeah. happy when I get a chance to use that word. It, it is a wacky one. So I'm there's trying, a bunch I'm, of really interesting works on that list um, that I think deserve more attention. So I got to check that out. You put a link to it in our little chat, but it's uh, it's not loading for some reason. They got a 502 <gasps> issue. I want oh, to no. find this. This is amazing. Any other notable things there on the, I mean, it's a hundred. Where I mean, did that yeah, rank? I can tell you some of my favorites that did are on they, that list. Did they rank these? Is they like a best it's, down it's to a hundred? specifically not ordered. Okay. Um, okay. And, and they, they did have to make some really hard decisions. I got into a fight with some uh, <laughs> prominent Mormon authors on Twitter for the fact that the list does not include Twilight, which perhaps should be on there, but I think they tried to focus more on works that were specifically Mormon in content yeah. rather than the biggest books written by LDS authors. Um, one of my favorites in there is uh, Dendo, um, One Year and One Half in Tokyo by Brittany Long Olson. It is a graphic novel mission journal. So every, this is sister missionary who went to Japan and every day on her mission, she drew one page of comics and then published it as a book. Wow. It is wonderful and fascinating. Um, and kudos to her for finding the time to do that. Right? I mean. I think, I think she revised them later, you know, like. Yeah, but yeah. she at least did a little bit of a sketch every day, so it's pretty cool. I mean, I wrote in my journal pretty re- like <laughs> religiously, but like every every evening we'd come in, it was like the first thing I'd do because I'd want to really keep it all fresh in my mind. And there was one point I remember it even bothered one of my companions because he'd be like, "Dude, you just he, get, he didn't say, dude, we didn't use slang, but he said, Elder, you get home and you're just you just you get that thing out and you're just in your own little world.' I'm like, I gotta get this written down. We can call people later. There's no rush to call the other elders and see how their day was. They're fine." They're fine. And now I've got this great thing where I read some and some entries that just say stuff like, so we rode the bus today and it was, you know. And then <laughs> the not every day life. on a mission is exciting, people. Not no. every day is that interesting. Um, yes. All right. 
speaking of uh, fun terms and stuff like that, 30 names and terms. This is from LDS Living People. Sorry, 31. They must have revised it because the, URLs, the URL says, th- was this previously published like a long time ago? Or did they just know. change it? I don't know. I don't know. But so, yeah, the URL is 30, but the title is 31. Oh my gosh. The 31st is the memories we made along the way. So, <laughs> <laughs> so they published 31 things that we don't say anymore. In the church, some of which you might know, some of which you might not know, like uh, Area Authority 70, I guess is Area 70 now that I think about it. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them just don't exist, like Assistant to the 12, you're supposed to say General Authority. Yeah, I don't know that that's one that we don't use, we just don't have them. There's like, no, yeah, it's just not a call. We theoretically could have them again. Bishop's Court was Ward Membership Council, which is a very different thing. And Bishop's Youth Committee is now Ward Youth Council. What That one's funny because I think we still call it BYC in my ward, we should get on that mm-hmm. but um some of the ones you know i, I like the duty to god has no replacement nope nor, or faith nor in god nor those are god. They're just this outline new beginnings people. we don't do that nonsense also home teaching high priests group leader homemaking meeting junior primary yeah. which I think a lot of people what are you what are you supposed to say instead of junior primary because i still hear junior senior thrown out quite a bit to represent the two the split oh you know what so scrolling down there's an image of these i think this is from the church style handbook it might be. Have you have you ever used that? I'm sure you have. I will, and I have, and I should again. The one that always kills me is you're not supposed to capitalize general conference, and that I it always looks wrong. It yeah, looks I wrong. agree, and I always capitalize it by nature because it's an official event. Like well, you have to put the whatever at the general conference, then you can capitalize it. But if you're just saying. Come to general conference, you don't that, capitalize it. That I kind of get. They'll say like, yeah, you go to the general conference. That would be lowercase. But it just, it always looks wrong. I agree with you. Uh, another interesting one though, excommunication in the new handbook does not say that anymore. Now it says withdrawal of membership. Indeed. Very euphemistic, but okay, fine. There's a couple in here or that aren't actually here that I've noticed though. I think it was a couple of years ago we wrote a piece uh, you know, here on the website that the preach my gospel had changed some terminology as well. They did not use the term investigators or less actors anymore. Investigators were called like people being taught and less actors were were referred to as returning members, which is a nice idea, potentially a little bit optimistic. I mean, I feel like if you call someone a returning member, that implies that they are back in some capacity or you're helping them get back in some capacity as opposed to members who you would like to see return, which could appropriately describe uh, less yeah. active people. So fun little list here, folks. Oh, remember, mutual is also no longer a term, which I still have to tell myself. I get it. The old title came out of the Mutual Improvement Association, MIA, they'd call it. Then they started calling it, it mutual. Just, yeah, it had lost meaning over time. <laughs> but even so, I don't like, okay, so now they just call it youth activities, which is fine. Okay. Because even officially, they don't even say young men really anymore. If you look in the handbook, yeah. there's young women, and then there is erotic priesthood quorums. And if you and if you're really going to tell me, I'm going to have to say, all right, well, we need to have our erotic priesthood activities versus just young men activities. Like, come on, yeah. Always fighting about. an uphill battle to get people to change what they say. Yes, and and um, to lean back on something snarky that happened uh, related to the whole the abuse story. I saw many people who were like, I'm shocked the church's statement did not call out AP for calling it the Mormon church to shame. Shame, well, shame, shame. 
think they had bigger things to worry about, maybe. Well, okay, fair enough. What else? What else on this list? I'll hit you with another quick one real fast. They've updated the Gospel Library app again, which is great. Just last week, we spoke about how they'd updated the Book of Mormon app to allow for some easier sharing, and now they've improved the search experience in Gospel Library. I didn't realize this. Before in the Gospel Library app that many of you have on your phone, uh, and I like this mock-up, by the way, that clearly shows an iPhone and then what's like a generic Android phone that looks like no Android phone that exists, but that's mm-hmm. what they have to do. Um, when you searched for things in the app, it only searched downloaded content previously. And a lot of the content you probably have in that app is downloaded because over time, because you can't, you can't read something without downloading it in the app. It's not like downloading. It's for offline yeah. reading. It's like, if you want to read the general handbook, you click that it's grayed out, you click the button and then you can read it, but it only searches the things that you have. They've updated it now to index everything on the back end and search every, like everything, which I think which is, is super nice. That it includes all content. I think that's very useful. I'm actually stunned. That wasn't a feature in the past, but I'm glad they've, uh, yeah, I thought it was. In. I mean, that means older general conference talks, magazine articles, videos. And you can also now search by different preference because it used to be, I think it only showed you what the church deemed most relevant. Mm-hmm. But now you can sort by most recent, different books, different speakers, which I think is great. Um, I haven't loved a lot, even if you just search on the regular church website in recent years, that it's clearly weighted to show a search term, uh, but to show you results from recent general conference addresses, even if it's barely related to your search term versus like an older talk that might be dead on for what you're looking for. So which is an interesting position, right? Like let's just gently suppress some of the older, weirder stuff. (laughs) I mean some of it if you want it, but the thing is I mean go to the modern profits. Yeah. I mean some like older I get it. Like okay, like they basically made it so the famous little factories talk by Boyd K. Packer is no longer (laughs) even searchable. That's fine. Unfindable. But if I want to find a talk from like 2004 that's really useful on a topic and it's better than recent ones, like, yeah, let me get that. I think that's still pretty okay. That's still right. If we're in the Hinkley area, isn't that fair? I I think so. I don't know where the cutoff line is. What do we say? Like uh, something pre... I mean, anything before I was born is not good, right? Pre-Benson? Yeah. Is the cutoff (laughs) line between Benson, Kimball and Benson? I don't know. I don't know, but I'm glad they're doing this. This is great. That'll make it more useful to use the app. I and, love uh, this part. It says you can quickly navigate to a verse by typing an abbreviated scripture reference. If it takes you too long to look up your scriptures, like you can type in NE three seven to get to first Nephi three seven. That's some, that's some hot keyword action they're working on right there. I mean, seriously. Well, I mean, win the scripture t- chase. I mean, we're laughing, but thank you. Hey, the people who work on Gospel good. Library get to have all the fun. They have the functional content. Like the poor people who use, who have to develop the Gospel Living app are the ones who are like, uh, no one uh, uses this. And and no one will use it till we fix it. But here's one funny thing. I did use it last week. We were doing a youth lesson and I pulled it from, it was in, in the Gospel Living app and it was good. But the hilarious thing was my bishop had shared it with me via text. And if you clicked it up to open it up in a browser... It just had like the name of the lesson and said how long it could be and said, this lesson will help you do this. And then there's no content. Like for some reason, the church is not porting over the body of these lessons from the Gospel Living app to the regular web. Maybe it's just a bug. But because at first when he sent it over, I was like, uh, there's nothing here, Bishop. Don't, I guess you just, you just really needed to-, to read it with your spiritual eyes. Yes. I think you, I was thought, I guess you just want to challenge me. That's fine. Challenge accepted. Um, 
Turns out, no, it was just all in the app, but I had I had to use the Gospel Living app, and maybe that's what they're for, trying to force me to do. <laughs> I'm not sure. Oh, this is interesting. They said they're they're working on updates for future updates where there will be support for misspellings and related words. Ooh, that's and a improve idea. relevant search results that may not contain the keyword but match the intent behind the search. So we can get some actual Google action on here. I wonder if they'll get really into like some real solid logic. Like if I were to type in. Mahan Rai Moriankamer, whose name I believe does not actually appear in the scriptures. Would it? No, I'm talking Brother Jared. Only time will tell. This is important stuff, folks. The next thing you know, we'll get into some good Boolean logic in the Gospel Library app, and it'll just be a blast Uh, for all involved. All right, what else we got here? Uh, uh, I'm going to throw in this random one because I'm a Brandon Sanderson nerd. Um, Did you know Brandon Sanderson helped write Saints? I'm afraid I don't know who Brandon Sanderson is. So Jeff, mea culpa. It's painful. He is Sorry. the big deal Mormon sci-fi fantasy author. He had that $40 million Kickstarter this spring. It's the number one Kickstarter ever. You missed this whole Kickst- thing, huh? The only Mormon Kickstarter I follow is the <laughs> one who wanted to do that Reign of Judges movie. That thing is dope. Oh. Okay, well, look it up. Look it up because okay. Okay. like Sorry. all Sorry. of... All of Hollywood is going crazy for him right now. Anyway, but he does he does Q&As on uh, YouTube. And on Thursday, someone sent in a question asking why he is on the acknowledgments page for Saints. And there was just an interesting little story. They sent him a first couple chapters asking, you know, how can we make this more narrative driven? Because that was the goal of Saints. And he oh, sent them back some yeah, suggestions. Yeah. And so he's on the thank you page. What Orson Scott Card wasn't available? I mean, yeah, why, why? I mean, or is he non? Is he non Yeah, that's he's what I'm the, saying. He's is, the new and improved non '80s Orson he's Scott. The, he's the new blood. Who's yeah. going to replace Stephanie Meyer then in the in the YA? Romance? There's several. Um, Charlie Holmberg, she's quite good, um, and is in the YA romancy area. Um, Shannon Hale is more middle grade, but she's another. One we need some Soraya Wilson should have been consulted. Soraya, this one's for you. I mean, there are several other Mormon yes. authors in there. Um, names you'll be familiar with from Desert Book. But I like that you look at this. It was interesting. Case. I'm a little behind on my Saints. I need to get back into it. I uh, me too. I've listened through the volumes before, and I spoke about this last week. How because the church uh, opened up some new artists, quote unquote, on music streaming services, which is great. But I wish they would do the same for some of our our scriptural like content because if you want to like stream saints on the audiobook, you're going chapter to chapter in the gospel library app and just like hitting the play button, hitting the play button. Yeah, imagine it doesn't if it work were a, well. Imagine if it were a nice playlist built out like an album. I, I wonder if it works in the um, what's it called Desert Books app, their streaming app, because I think it, Saints is available for free in there, and those have audiobooks. I should check that one out. Yeah, that's what I, I, I wonder if be, it works better in there. It might. I mean, I, and I know it's funny because you could get it from other through other audio services and actually like pay money. That's why I love some things in the church. It's like I could get this for free here, or I could get an Audible subscription and literally have to pay to listen to Saints. Yes, mm-hmm. whatever. Uh, real quick here, BYU Pathway. I think one of the great programs the church does that you don't always hear a ton about. But my goodness, uh, if you or people you know are looking for a chance to get a higher education and do so affordably, it's really really good. Uh, I'd actually like to pitch 
our buddy Kirk Frankham leading saints a couple months ago, he interviewed the head of BYU pathway. And it was pretty interesting to hear kind of the genesis of the program and what it does. So yeah. cool thing they're doing here is they're extending their tuition discount to more students. So last fall, November, 2021, uh, president Ashton, who is the leader of pathway president, Brian K Ashton, uh, announced a Heber J grant tuition discount which with tuition with discounts for tuition ranging from 10 to 50% and they've decided to extend it and expand it to others it's largely based on income uh, and and I don't know if actually looking at this article if it's if they're referring to US students because the rates are significantly lower uh, if you're in other developing countries. Oh, I mean, here we go. Like- it says they announced it will guarantee a 50% tuition discount for students in Africa in their first year. Yes. So they are expanding it to other countries, it seems. Which is great. So, yeah. and that's one thing to bear in mind, like there's certain rates they have that are North American ones, but it is, it is steeply lower to begin with in other countries. And for them to be able to shave that off or, or do it by half is great. Uh, and really get people access to education. I, I love this because it's kind of like the um, the perpetual education fund, right? Which we don't hear much about anymore, which still exists, as far as I know. But I believe Pathways. I don't want to say it's replaced it, but it definitely seems like the church has it realized kind of there's, there's this new avenue they can take to to directly provide educational services to people around the world instead of trying to find a nice way for them to get loans to do it locally. Uh, which is great because for some people it can be the difference. You might be in a developing country and just having a degree, even if it's a general studies degree, but having a degree can make a, a massive difference in your professional opportunities. And that Absolutely. means you're better able to provide for yourself, your family, you're better able to serve in the church and in the kingdom and all that stuff. So glad they're doing this, making it more accessible to others. Yeah, it is a great program. Um, it's amazing how much they've been able to do with it. Yeah. Well, all right. Do we want more. to touch this last one? Or? I know you're debating touching it, but you should touch it with all the touches. <laughs> all right, all right. We're gonna do it. So this one, I, I found out through a friend. I do not follow Glenn Beck at all, but <laughs> a friend shared this with me. Um, there is a photo on Glenn Beck's Instagram saying that he had the opportunity to baptize someone this weekend, and it shows a picture of him in a river hugging a guy after he's been baptized. Neither of them are wearing white. And the fr- my friend just said, so what does this mean? Is this a Mormon baptism that's an authorized baptism? Why are they not wearing white? Is Glenn Beck baptizing someone into another church and still Mormon? I don't know. What's going and, on here? And they're not alone. I'm scrolling through some of the comments. I, I was just kind of very Oh, yeah. There's definitely there, whole comment chains in there. Yeah, there's one that are like, this doesn't look like an LDS baptism. So are we doing non-LDS conversions? I don't even know if you're allowed to do that. I mean, doesn't that... Weird for a member of the church to baptize someone not a member of the church. Well, especially because presumably that means you'd have to be authorized by another church, unless you're just doing totally non-denominational rogue baptisms of just like you need to be baptized doesn't doesn't matter who's doing it or it what could yeah, very strange it, it's it's interesting i mean we know glenn beck is is a convert to the church he has an interesting backstory he speaks quite persuasively in the past about the church i remember when president hinckley died and a lot of props to glenn beck who devoted part of his segment on his show to praising president hinckley and he's like i want to tell you about a man probably none of you know at all and what, it, what he's meant to me. 
but I'm curious about this too. What does this mean? And everyone's saying the same thing. What does this mean? And of course, there's those who like to remind us like baptism into the gospel of Jesus Christ can be done anywhere if it is done by proper authority. Yes, it can be done anywhere, but if it's an LDS baptism, wouldn't he be wearing white even if he's baptizing them in a river? I mean, that's the idea, I guess. This merits a handbook look, right? right? Is it really suggested that you need to wear white? Like, it's obviously the ideal, but... yeah. But it, I mean, he's just wearing some kind of like Under Armour T-shirt. I mean, this this says everything about like either non-denominational or even I wouldn't say evangelical baptisms because you know, <laughs> yeah, you know, you know. right. Yeah. Also, you want to talk about searchability of things, folks. This is going to speak to my ignorance, perhaps. I'm going to out myself on the show. But sometimes, if you say you open up something like the Handbook on a website, you'll see a little search bar up at the top. But that will still that will go back and search all of Gospel Library, as far as I know. The church's own website does not allow a way to search the document you are in exclusively, which when you're trying to look for things in the handbook is a kind of an obstacle. And maybe yeah. I'm just really dumb because I should know this better considering my constant exposure to this kind of stuff. But like, I, I want to find- I found it difficult to search the handbook when I'm trying to find something. It's like not, I want to find- Unless you're yeah. reading through the whole thing, then it'll, it makes logical sense, the order of things, but trying yeah. to find it is not. I always wind up Googling it. Like right now I just Google general handbook baptism to Mm -hmm. try to find it. It's in section 18. Thank you. (laughs) And so now we get it. I'm trying to see if it, uh, let's see, is going to tell us anything here. This is very important people. Very important. Maybe blessing the children. Come on. Give me more things about baptism. Baptism. No, baptism. Baptism. 18.7.4. Oh, I was about to get there. I'm on 7.1. I beat you. Man, you're too fast that's where it to just says it should be a large enough for both the person at performing the ordinance and the person being baptized to stand in clothing 18.7.5 a person who performs a baptism and is and a person who is being baptized wear white clothing full stop that is not transparent when wet an endowed person who wears a temple garment under his clothing while performing while performing a baptism um, local units purchase baptismal clothing with budget funds and do not charge for its use so that doesn't seem to have a lot of wiggle room that's straight up no. not saying wear you know, ideally or wear aloud or whatever. That's just, that's what you do. So I don't know what Glenn's doing, but all things are pointing to something weird. I don't know, Glenn, we need to get to the bottom of this. Clearly. I'm actually glad you brought this my way. It's been a heavy week and this is the story I needed to lift my soul. So there you go. Well, I think that's going to be it for us this week. Liz, you got anything you're working on plugging anything people, uh, um, we took a little break with pop culture on the apricot tree for July so we could travel. But this week we are, uh, recording our episode on stranger things season four. So oh, nice. it's going to be a good time talking look- about Susie, the BYU fan. <laughs> and the many, many nuggets, correct nuggets of Mormonism that are throughout her bedroom and on her computer and all kinds of stuff. Absolutely. Even what's on her computer screen is like an actual oh, yeah. talk. Bro. Yeah, you've seen all that. So that's I like, did. It's great. Oh, it's great. That's so, going to be should be fun. Pretty fun. I hope I hope you had a good time out visiting DC. Uh, since I'm a low, did you did you eat anywhere that was like the best restaurant or the best eats you had while you're here? Anything jump out? I'm always curious. DC's so, got a good food scene. Yeah, so there's there were a lot of good places. I mean, we did Ted's Bulletin. Yeah. Uh, my my uncle told us to go to the old Ebbett Grill, which we liked that. That's you know, classic. everything was really great that we went to. There were the only disappointment was Chipotle, and we should have known better. 
Well, it's Chipotle. So, I mean, it's fine. Exactly. We should. We know. do actually have Cafe Rio out here. If you were feeling oh, like, there you go. Yeah, for some reason they exist in the DC area. I don't know. Well, um, hey everyone, thanks for listening. I know the show's a little bit longer this week, but we hope it was for good reason. A uh, lot, lot going on. Uh, thanks again to Jennifer Roche for uh, taking the time to be with us and talk about some difficult stuff, but stuff that needs to be discussed for sure. And Liz, thank you very much for taking the time to be here as well and follow through and do a, do a half hour of news on top of it. I enjoyed Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Well, folks, we hope you have a great week. We will talk to you soon. Should be the sisters next week and they'll check in. You'll get to hear from Tiffany and Arianne. And uh, I'll be back with you a couple weeks from now. So you can breathe easy until I come and invade your ears once more. Until then, have a great week. Talk to you soon. This has been This Week in Mormons. Bye-bye.